Hey, everybody. Hi. Before we get started, a quick request for you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Please. Haven't made this request in a while, so this one is extra special. With all of the strength of the ones we forgot. Let it resound through you. Yes. We have a shout out to a recent reviewer as well. If you leave a review, you will get your very own Badass Lady Meter rating. Eventually. Eventually. This one's from two months ago. We're sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we've been working a lot. Things have been a little hard lately. (laughs) Maybe you have heard. (laughs) The world's on fire. Um, This review is from Tarfum. Tarfum, your Badass Lady Meter rating is all of the low-budget fantasy adaptations your heart can take. Thank you so much. Thank you. Everybody review us. Yes, please. And now the episode. Enjoy. Hello. Hello. I'm Grace. I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. Indeed. This week, The Castle in the Air by Diana Wynne-Jones. Diana (laughs) Wynne-Jones. We haven't covered a Diana Wynne-Jones book for a while, but we are continuing on in our mission to become the preeminent Diana Wynne-Jones podcast. Love some Diana Wynne-Jones. Travel along with us. Yeah. This book was published in 1990, and it is a sequel to Howl's Moving Castle. We have an episode on that book, one of our very first ones. It's one of our most beloved books. So if you're interested, go and check it out. And then we had a mini holiday episode after we went and saw a play adaptation of that book. Created by the Book It Repertory Theater in Seattle. Um, it was magnificent. I, The state of theater now, who even knows, but yeah. they did <laughs> put it back on this year. Um, so if you're in the Pacific Northwest, uh, yeah, once theater exists again, check it out. Question marks? <laughs> we'll put a link to it on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com. Yeah. We do thoroughly spoil every book that we cover, so if you haven't read this one before or just haven't revisited it for a while, pop off and do that, and we'll be here when you get back. This is a book that we actually haven't read before. It's been requested by multiple listeners. Thank you so much, Thanks, all of listeners. you who've written in about it. Um, we didn't realize when we were young that there were sequels because when you're a kid and you don't have great access to the internet, it can be or hard to figure things out. Right. The internet is like not even really a thing for kids at all. Is it still not a <laughs> thing for kids? Sound off. (laughs) Um, So we were very excited to learn once we started doing this podcast that there were two sequels to Hell's Moving Castle. Um, Loose sequels, I would say, but... (laughs) They're like, a different story is happening, and then suddenly... And then suddenly we're like back in the first book. with the world of, of Sophie and Hell and Calcifer, and it's joyous. It truly is. Yeah. So we don't have, you know, the same nostalgia for this because we haven't read it before, but we're still very excited and we have a lot to discuss. We will break down how the publisher chose to package and promote this book since we don't have a childhood copy. We are looking at the cover that is that has the same artist's cover art and it's the same um, publisher as our childhood version of Howl's Moving Castle. Mm hmm. 
We'll put up this cover on our Instagram, Dragon Babies Podcast, Twitter, Dragon Babies Pod, and website. So on this cover, we have a um, very classic Arabian Nights type, um, the Onion Dome Palace. Uh, like it, it's that classic Aladdin and everything else that's come from that original collection of stories. And then we've got two gins on the front cover. Um, one of them is the uh, brother of the antagonist, Jin, who steals the princess um, with the big leathery wings. And he looks kind of like a... Like a yeah, like little devil type with the goatee and the pointed ears and the wings, um, and he's looking uh, peeved. Around the border, then we have the second jinn, which is the the jinn that Howl gets transformed into. Um, well, he's a genie, not a jinn. Sorry, right? Thank you. He's a. I'm going to screw up that distinction throughout. Okay. So he's not a djinn. He's a genie. And uh, he looks like Calcifer looks on the first cover. Like that's the mimicking style, which I really love, especially because the genie is really ugly. Like he looks like a goblin um, from Lord of the Rings, kind of. And, and there's an evil sneer on his yeah, face. Yeah, and he's blue, and he like he's wispy. You can see he's got the pointed ears and the like. Eh. Yeah, the scowl, um, the mischievous like smile scowl. Because Howl is so vain, so it's really funny that they have that they put him on the cover in this guise to me. <laughs> Uh, and then in the background, we have some, there's a lot of background. The, the castle in the air, I'm realizing now that's what this classic, it's just a floating. Yeah. <laughs> they realized that a little differently than I would expect. But also, let's look back at the Howl's cover. It's the same it's approach. The same. It's just a totally solid looking castle that is flying well, in the sky. And that one is a European one. Mm-hmm. It's a European style castle versus this is a Middle Eastern style castle. Yeah, but it's very tangible. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. It's funny. Th- these paintings are by Dan Craig. Okay. And I I love them. They're kind of surrealist mm-hmm. and I really like that about them. Um they really pull you into the book. Like there's no if I'm seeing that cover, I'm intrigued, especially sure. as a kid. Yeah, and I think it's really valuable that they do have such specific details as well. Yeah. Um I yeah. think it roots it to the book in a way that I it have always been super frustrated by in my whole life. Yeah, we talk about this yeah, a lot. <laughs> when the cover art portrays something that is just... It's inaccurate. Factually inaccurate yeah. if you've read the book. And mm-hmm. it, like, it just... And I understand how that happens. Like, you... Uh, the artist may not have read the book. Like, it, it may not have been published yet. Like, right. it, they just get instructions and then they're supposed to draw it. Um, but that's not a problem on these covers. Top notch. Five stars. 10 out of 10. So now I will provide a brief plot summary to catch us all up. This book is about a young man named Abdullah who is a carpet salesman Mm -hmm. in a bazaar in the city of Zanzib. He has been, you know, eking out a living. He's relatively comfortable but he's not really interested in being a carpet 
merchant. Mm-hmm. He has these grand and glorious daydreams about being a long-lost prince who was separated from his family and got into all kinds of scrapes. He dreams about magnificent palaces and gardens and all the places that he'd like to see and kind of lives with his head in the clouds a lot of the time. A mysterious gentleman comes to his shop and sells him what he insists is a magic carpet. And he shows Abdullah that the carpet is able to rise up in the air and fly. That night, Abdullah sleeps on the carpet to try to make sure that no one steals it or the man doesn't come back and take it. And the carpet transports him to one of the gardens from his very dreams. All the details are correct. And there he meets a beautiful and logical woman named Flower in the Night who says that she's never seen a man before. She actually thinks that Abdullah is a woman when she first sees him because he has a lot of hair. (laughs) And she, like... The only man she's ever seen is her father. Yeah, like, conceptually, she doesn't really understand what a man, like, what gender is. (laughs) He promises that he will bring her many different depictions of men so that she can get an idea of what they're like because she is promised in marriage to a prince and she's trying to figure out how she feels about that. He brings back all these paintings and wonderful uh, pictures for her to look at. And she decides that of all the men, she thinks he's the best and she loves him and wants to marry him. So she wants to escape. She doesn't want to live in this weird walled off palace where yeah. she's never seen a man. Yeah. And he isn't allowed to like go outside and do stuff. Abdullah prepares for this. And during that process for stealing her away so that the two of them can get married in a different city somewhere across the desert. And he, in the process, learns from his dead father's family that there was a prophecy made at his birth that he would be right what is exactly is it he will be raised up higher than all the all the rest of his family yeah than everyone else in his family um and that he won't follow in his father's trade and it won't happen until after his father's death as well yeah and does it it doesn't say anything about a dullah's marriage we only know i don't think so a prophecy about her marriage yeah So his family is being shady and trying to figure out how they can capitalize on this. They try to force him to get married to two very distant relations. Um, I I thought of his uh, father's first wife's sister, Fatima. The narrator I listened to actually made her sound kind of like Yzma from The Emperor's New Groove. So that's like exactly how I pictured her is just as Yzma because she she has machinations. (laughs) Really wonderful. (laughs) Um, so he goes back on the carpet to try to get flower in the night. But as he appears in the garden, a huge, great djinn comes down from the sky and snatches her away. A scary looking one. He looks like a, like a giant bat man. (laughs) A giant bat man comes and snatches her away. At the same time, her father, who Abdullah quickly realizes is the sultan, captures him and is like, where is my daughter? What is happening? Arg. Yeah, just um, like, gonna kill you. It comes out in that process that there was also a prophecy made about Flower in the Night at her birth, which was that she would marry the first man she saw other than her father, which mm-hmm. is why she's been sequestered away so that he can pick who that first man is. 
Abdullah escapes from the dungeon because the Sultan doesn't believe that a jinn took her. So he's decided to just imprison him until they can, yeah, figure out where she is. They can find her, marry her to him, and, and then, then kill, kill him, him so, so that, that she, she can, can marry, marry a someone prince. else. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because he's like, well, we have to play yeah, by I'm not the gonna rules of the, the prophecy, prophecy. But I'm going to, like, you know. Yeah, but you are not who I pictured <laughs> yeah. as her husband. Yeah. Um, but the carpet and also his neighbor's dog come and rescue him. Yeah. His um, neighbor's dog, because it turns out the password for the carpet is snoring. It's great. It's That's great. Um, and so the dog makes the carpet go to him because he likes him because he just gave him so much squid. Keeps giving him food. <laughs> So Abdullah is trying to figure out how he can save Flower in the Night at this point. Mm -hmm. But first he is taken to an oasis. He's chained and he's trying to figure out how to get his chains off. Um, And the carpet takes him to a nearby oasis. But at the oasis are a thief and his henchmen whom Abdullah realizes are actually from one of his daydreams. Yeah. <laughs> it's a person that he made up who is real. Yeah. They have a genie. Or who the genie is imitating the the gin is right, but we're not there. Yet. Oh, sorry. Let's I'm just trying to stay myself too. <laughs> trying to stay chronological. Mm. They have a genie and they let the genie out. He turns two of the henchmen into toads because he says that he vowed that his revenge would be whoever let him out would be turned into a toad. And then they start making wishes. Um, The genie gives them a feast because that's what they wish for and everyone gets stuffed and drunk and passes out. And then Abdullah takes the opportunity to take the genie for himself. So Abdullah then makes a wish that leads him to be transported to Ingri, which is the kingdom from the first book. I know when they said Ingri, I really picked up. Um, And he is outside an inn and there's a shifty looking dude asleep on a bench. And the genie tells him that that guy can help him. (laughs) I know. And I love that of him just be like, what? Like this guy asleep outside of a bar. Yeah, he will help him find Flower in the Night. So the two of them team up. He says he's a soldier, a stain, Stangian. Is that right? Stangian? String. Strangian. Strangian. He is a Strangian soldier. Strangia is a neighboring kingdom that was recently at war with Ingri, and Ingri defeated them. But it sounds like the uh, soldiers are being treated relatively well. Like they were each given a bounty and kind of told to head home. Um, it's a little confusing. We'll talk more about the wars in this book later. Yeah. Um, so he is intending to just kind of travel across the, the earth and, or the kingdom, kind of travel across the kingdom and steal from people as he goes. It becomes apparent. Yeah. Um, but people who try to rob him, <laughs> right. he says, so he's not all bad. Yeah, he's like, he'll, he'll only have people gentle to wickedness. rob. <laughs> yeah, if those people were trying to rob him first. Um, so the two of them team up and decide to head for Kingsbury together, which is where the royal palace is is and abdullah promises him at that point that he will get him a princess to marry yeah because that's when they're camping that Mm -hmm. night and he's like well to himself he's like it's fine i have a genie in a bottle i'll just wish that one and then 
it'll be fine. And they also meet a cat. Yes. <laughs> and then a kitten. Who, like, the cat gets big and then it gets small. And the cat has some kind of magical powers that seem to come out when it wants to intimidate people, specifically intimidate Abdullah, because the Strangian sh- soldier loves the cat, loves the kitten. He names them Midnight and Whippersnapper. And Great he names. coddles them to no end. Great names. And basically makes the two of them super noticeable and memorable because every inn they go to, they demand many expensive comforts for each of the cats, including yeah. salmon and milk. And baskets and cushions. Um, So they continue traveling and eventually wish for the flying carpet to Mm -hmm. return. The the as Grace said, the genie can only give one wish a day. So one wish a day, and Abdullah keeps using up his wishes. Yeah, he keeps getting a payday loan on (laughs) his wishes. Yeah, so he's already it's my wishes, and I need them now. Right, he's already kind of wished out. Um, Once he finally has the opportunity, he wishes for the flying carpet to come back, but it comes back with the bandit leader on it, who quickly transforms into the djinn that stole flower in the night, who explains that his name is Hazrul. And he has been forced by his brother, another djinn who is part good and evil, to behave wickedly and steal every princess in the world because he wants wives. And, and none of the the djinn, none of the djinn ladies like him because he is part good and evil. So as they say, he's like weak and small. Yeah. Um. And so the djinn has been like impersonating the bandit king. He's been putting all these different pieces into place because he is actually trying to help the jilted lovers and various princes and kings whose princesses were taken to try to get them back because he's trying in some way to thwart the plans that he's being forced to carry out. Um, because he is good deep down after all. And I love the setting up of like, well, if I create enough jilted lover scenarios, like right. someone will Someone's rescue. And as he says, yeah. Abdullah didn't even really write for him. He right. did not expect him to mm-hmm. be the one who got this close and was this persistent in trying to get the princess back. Yeah. So at that point, Hazrul... What does he tell them? He just says that he's going back to the castle in the sky, which is where the princesses are. And that the carpet has been told not to follow him. So they're not going to be able to get it to trace him there. Mm -hmm. Um, So both the soldier and Abdullah decide, and the cats (laughs) decide to continue on to Kingsbury. And there is where we smash into all the characters from the Howl's universe. We meet the wizard Solomon, Letty Letty Hatter, and then the cat is transformed back (laughs) into Sophie. Sophie! (laughs) Midnight has been Sophie, and Whippersnapper is her baby that she gave birth to as a cat. Which is so wild. Wild. Especially because Sophie's like, pretty afraid of her baby because she's afraid of hurting the baby well and she's been a cat for a while yeah. um she was turned into a cat by Howl so that she could watch the process of him trying to save the princess from being stolen and then negotiations for not getting his castle stolen by the gins right yeah yeah Anyway, but she got stuck a cat because Hell is kind of missing right now and they're not sure where he is. Um, so 
at that point, they're like, oh, wait, but that means Whippersnapper, who we left back at the inn with the soldier, Sophie's with baby. the genie and the carpet, is actually Sophie's baby. We need to get back and get him. And when they get there, everyone's gone. Yeah. Genie's gone. Soldier is gone. And the baby named Morgan is also gone. <laughs> Morgan. <laughs> the names in these books are so, so funny, funny to me. I will never not laugh at King Justin. <laughs> Justin. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, so they figure that they must have gone to where the princesses are. They went to the castle in the sky and they're cursing out, trusting the soldier in any capacity. Yeah. So I'm sorry, the carpet is left. So they use the carpet to go to the castle. They have a beautiful ride through the sky. It's very romantic. That fulfills every, you know, little Grace's dreams of being able to go up and just like play in the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> Always looks so good. Yeah. Um, but they're appropriately white and cold as well. They make it to the castle and there's a whole heck of a lot of princesses there. Yeah, and all kinds of stuff there happening. There is a screaming baby. There's a screaming little girl who is the princess of Ingeri who is yeah. captured, who's only four years old. And just like general pandemonium. Um, so they devise a plan that I'm not going to go through in great detail to get the evil djinn to reveal where he has hidden his brother's life. Because there's a piece of his life that was put away and without control over it, Hazrul has no safety because his brother could kill him. Mm-hmm. So... They figure out that the piece of life is in his own brother's nose ring. <laughs> Jamal's dog, who is there with Jamal, eats the nose ring. <laughs> they subdue um, Dalzell and uh, save the day. Yes. Is there anything I'm missing? Um, what happens after that? Then Flower in the Night. Oh, wishes- what, what is the, the carpet? Flower in the Night sets the genie free. He leaves his bottle and it's revealed that he was howled, (laughs) (laughs) trapped, and disguised. And everyone's like, yikes, you've been with us this whole time. (laughs) Why didn't you say something, buddy? The carpet was Calcifer, who was woven into a rug. (laughs) And now that they've been released, they can set things right and take the castle back down to Earth, send all the princesses home, deal with all the traveling processions who are trying to find them, and just, like, put things back in order, generally. And Abdullah and Flower in the Night get married and become ambassadors for Zanzib in Inkery. Yeah. So they do get fancy. They do. They yeah. do get fancy. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's enough. Yes. <laughs> that's enough plot. I agree. As with every Diana Wynne Jones book, a lot goes on. There's a yeah. lot of other little threads, but everything comes together in the end. Yes. Um, very cleanly. I will add that the ebook I was reading included six different first chapters of various Diana Wynne Jones books just Seems at the like end it would of give this. You a seizure. So I was real confused because things were wrapping up in the way that they typically do in a Diana Wynne Jones book. And I was like, there's like 80 pages <laughs> left. What is going to happen? What's and then the book was just like, read the first chapter of the Dark Lord of Darkholm. I was like, wow. no, <laughs> I've wow. already read that book. I don't want to. That's so disorienting. So 
We aren't going to have old and new impressions because we did not before. read this when we were young. Um, but let's talk about our. Let's talk about how we saw this book within the framework of a being lifelong lovers of Howl's Moving Castle and the way that it plays into that story, and then b being adult readers who myself personally was a little nervous going into this book because it depicts middle eastern cultures and is written by a white english welsh author She's welsh yeah right no when i was when i realized it was in uh, like there were a lot of the arabian nights fairy tales mm-hmm. woven into this um i thought the same thing i was like oh no like how is this gonna be <laughs> Yeah, I was nervous. I was heartened because um, one of our listeners had messaged me on Twitter a while back um, and said that they loved this book as well, but hadn't read it since they were young. Um, But thinking back on it, were surprised that it wasn't racist in the way that (laughs) That many similar books would be yeah um yeah yeah, so let's talk about that first so yeah i did some i did a little research um because i was thinking about the specific stories that are from 1001 nights that are contained within this and kind of act as jumping off points for dan and jones because she is basically in every book she writes, she's playing with a certain genre or established fairy tale or like sci-fi convention. Yeah. Um, You you know what I mean? Not a sci-fi convention, but a conventional trope within sci-fi. Yes. (laughs) It just sounded really silly all of a sudden. Um, And in this one, you know, she's pulling from different source material that isn't European source material. Um, And I was thinking about the specific stories contained in it. And the biggest one I would say is Aladdin. Um, And interestingly, I had echoes of when we read Beauty by Robin McKinley. And we were like, so Disney just completely ripped this off for their movie. Because I also feel like Disney ripped this off for their movie of Aladdin, which came out two years after this book came out. Mm. Although... I mean, animation at that point took many years, so I know it had been underway for a while. But there's just a lot of similarities. Well, they also, I mean, I I think that there's so much similarity with the source material, too, that, and, like, Disney did a lot of ripping off of mm-hmm. that routinely as well. And then taking following that thread, I was like, so the origin of Aladdin, hmm, let's look at that. Yeah. It is not an Arabian story it's not from 1001 nights it was added to that manuscript by a french archaeologist archivist in the early 1700s named antoine galland and he took the story from another christian storyteller okay so it's a european addition to the that Middle Eastern fairy tale compendium that comes from like really, really old, like oral tradition right. myths. There are no original Arabic tellings, Arabic language tellings of Aladdin. Of Aladdin. It has since, because, you know, this happened 300 years ago now, it has since been written in Arabic and kind of brought into that those volumes of 1001 nights but it wasn't originally a middle eastern folktale which explains why white people like it so much 
much. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that also makes me nervous about that being like a huge underpinning for this narrative. You know what I mean? Um, so very interesting. thinking so, through that, I was like, well, now I really want to look at this closely and yeah. think about where there might be, where there might be racist or generally orientalist depictions right. of, and just like tropes and things in the storytelling, right. Of these cultures, stereotypes about, um, people that are in a Middle Eastern setting used by this story. Oh, it's probably not great that a lot of it surrounds it centers around forced marriage. That's exactly what I was <laughs> going to say next. There's such a preoccupation with Islamic polygamy, which is yeah. a really, you know, this is from a long time ago. Like historically, that is something that was somewhat frequently done, mm -hmm. but like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, well, yeah. And actually like, European royals have, I mean, the the exact kind of thing. They just wouldn't marry their mistresses right. typically. Yeah, like no, that was exactly the same that was the thing. Like it, it was a very similar, if not the same, convention, just in a different cultural way in yeah. European, like rich and powerful nobility. And that is what stuck out to me as the biggest, like most xenophobic Orient okay. orientalist part yeah. of this book and the way it's written. Yeah, um, there's a such point. a focus on like, oh, all the men want multiple wives yeah. and they don't think women mean anything. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. And we'll talk about the feminism in this book, which is also very strange. Um, yeah. In a different part of our discussion because I want to uh, finish these thoughts first. Right, right. But um, just for like, Abdullah, not into uh, curvaceous ladies. <laughs> oh my God. Well, Diana Wynne Jones is very body shamey in general. Yeah, this has come up in her books before. Yeah. She uses fat as a pejorative often. Yeah. Um, it, it's a moralist take. Mm -hmm. it, like they are fat, therefore like they're indulgent and greedy and selfish. Like it's definitely in that category. Yeah. When we read Witch Week, I was thinking about this a lot mm. um, because Nan, the main character in that, or one of the main characters um, is often described as overweight, but it's always paired with like what's wrong with her. Yeah. Um, and this actually comes up like throughout Diana Wynne Jones's books, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that, um, that is true. And it was just like hyper noticeable here, especially because, okay, I said we weren't going to talk about feminist stuff yet. Let's talk about that later. Um, what I wanted to finish saying also about um, problematic depictions of the main characters. Um, so I thought it was interesting that Diana Wynne Jones used the like flowery language as kind of a way to say that they're basically speaking a different language than English. Do you see what I'm saying? I feel like without hmm. trying to drill down and say, okay, they were speaking in this language. And like when, you know, Abdullah gets to angry, like why would he understand everyone? Like are these different, do these different kingdoms speak the same language? But then I felt like there was a way to show that the language was different mm. because of the way that people speak to one another in Zanzib. So different dialect, a different basically. dialect. Yeah. yeah. But then I was trying to unpack and like, maybe you can help me with this, but on the one hand, I really loved like the compliments, the different mm -hmm. phrases that came out of that, like 
charming mm-hmm. cat, like former feline and mobile, um, like most mobile baby. Like there were a lot of really good phrases, mm-hmm. but I also couldn't tell if some of that had some like vaguely racist undertones of like, these like these, people are these flourishy foreign people yes. as opposed to the like solid uh, salt of the earth, the European. Exactly. Like, aren't they so exotic? Okay. So it's an exotifying right. thing. Yeah, there's there's probably some of that in there. I also took it to be kind of, which I don't even know if this was the intent or if this is just how I took it, um, as uh, like Arabic is a very poetic language, especially yeah. in my... And you've studied Arabic, so you yeah, have it, some experience. I have some, some understanding of like, okay, like basic Arabic, how it's written, what it's like. And right. it, it is, especially compared to English, yeah. I think it's like not even a fair fight. Like English is kind of stilted and awkward compared yeah. to like what you can do with Arabic. Right. Um, so yeah, I, and that's I, kind of what a, a bit of what I was thinking. I took it to be a little bit of that. That yeah. like it's this... Um, metaphor for Arabic in some ways that it's English with poetry more built in. Right. Yeah. But it, it also could have been like, I don't know, like you see this a lot with Asian cultures because they are more, um, overt in their, uh, manners like they they talk more and uh, practice more and learn and teach more about like proper manners because there is that um it's like woven into the culture it's in western culture too yeah westerners just talk about it a lot less like you you basically have to learn those skills through osmosis you know it's it's not we're we're not so explicit about that in Western culture, but it's still there, mm-hmm. you know? So maybe that is another kind of exotifying by mm-hmm. like pointing out all the ways that that culture is like this instead of just accepting it as like a different version of, you know, culture. Totally. That, that makes, makes sense. sense. No, that does. Um, yeah. And I, is, was there anything else that stood out to you as, as problematic or like Islamophobic or Orientalist? Yeah. I mean, it was mostly the, the really intent focus on polygamy that yeah. was kind of eye rolling at me. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> totally. And like, and this is, so I think part of it too is, um, Diana Wynne Jones, like I mentioned, is always playing with an established story right and here she's playing with stories from a middle eastern folk tradition Mm -hmm. so there is going to be like a certain level of mockery baked into that you know what i mean because she's commenting on it right it's a commentary of the folk tradition that she tends to be very playful and like very silly with Mm -hmm. the way that she treats established tales yeah, and I, I think... Not that I'm saying, like, it makes this stuff okay, because I did specifically want to call out the um, the approach to polygamy and, like, emphasis on it. And, I mean, I think that that right there is, like, you could boil down the essence of, like, what's problematic about someone um, being a voice on yep. a culture that's not their own is you just can't have the level of understanding of respect for intimacy with the culture itself so if you do a satirical take on it it's it's just not possible for it to be okay in the way that it would be okay if someone from that culture is doing that (laughs) 
Perfect. <laughs> yep. That's what I wanted to get to. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Great job articulating that. Well, no, because like um, I've, I really enjoy this book. Mm-hmm. I love Diana Wynne Jones. Like that's been thoroughly yeah. established. And I think it's, I think it's more important, especially in, in this context where there's mm-hmm. nothing like openly hateful yeah. where like you Not can still enjoy. I'm really surprised by how well she did. Yes. Yeah. Like we're, we're discussing these, these prickly pitfalls that mm-hmm. just at, like born out of necessity. Like we're saying she's not from this culture that's going to be in there, but it's also a pretty well done job of mm-hmm. what she was doing. Exactly. And above all, I do appreciate a major fantasy author wanting to incorporate different folk traditions yeah, other than just white just European being, ones, yeah, exactly. which are mm-hmm. so rampantly present in, you know, every book that we cover. Right. Um, and I, I was also thinking a bit about Tamara Pierce because she has books that do, um, take place in areas within Tortal that mm-hmm. are clearly Middle Eastern inspired, um, also to varying degrees of success. And I do think she gets more like careful and respectful as her work as goes time on. goes on. Yeah. Definitely, you um, can totally tell that. And she today, I would say, is one of the more respectful and thoughtful white fantasy authors who does write about I think so different cultures yeah Um, like if you take her most recent book um the new mayor the young new mayor book like it's just like wow like she she is doing a lot of work tempest and slaughter which came out a few years ago yeah um it's just it's obvious like if you compare that with her earliest books the development that she's done and the work that she's doing in trying to uh, be a white person yeah. and incorporate diversity respectfully and appropriately yeah. like and explore those themes in her books yeah. <laughs> and we have a bunch of episodes on Tamara Pierce books too so check those out yeah. um but anyway Although, yeah, so although it's really cool that she is bringing in this different folk tradition, it's also important that we as white people and especially white creators of any kind, mm-hmm. um, it's important to impact this, be stuff. really conscious of this yeah. and talk through it. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the feminism of this book, which exists. It's yeah, definitely it's there. there. And there is. I think a pretty firm statement about women being made, um, but it's a weird one, I would say. Yeah, this, like, it was kind of, uh, it was a lot. It was just a lot. It was was very complicated. Yeah. So here's the way I saw it, essentially. While it is women that are ostensibly being saved by men throughout the book, and it's princesses who are being offered up as like props for the djinn as wives, but then also props for the other men in the story who are interested in just having, you know, quote unquote, a princess, Mm -hmm. not interested in the quality of each woman's character or what she wants, what she's interested in, what her agenda is. Yeah. Um, You know, that doesn't even come into consideration for anyone other than Abdullah, Mm -hmm. who is, initially won over by a flower in the night's beauty, but he very quickly is saying to himself, she's so smart. She's so educated. She's so logical. She's so much better than me. Like Mm -hmm. she's amazing. Why would she ever want to be with me? Does she actually want to marry me? Is this fair for me to marry her because she's only met two men in her life? Like he's really thinking through it. Yeah. And 
then that brings me to the other piece. The women are being saved, but the men that are saving them are like the weakest characters in the book. And they're actually pretty ordinary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's nothing super special about like Abdullah or even in a lot of ways, the, uh, Strangian, Strangian soldier Mm -hmm. who is actually Prince Justin. Um, And then even Howell, who is like a fascinating character for a lot of reasons. But when Sophie, I think it's kind of summed up that when Sophie is first describing him, someone who's listening, I can't remember who it is, is like, oh God, like, why are you just listing all of his vices? And she's like, like, I'm not listing his vices. I'm describing him. Right. Yeah. This is who he is. This is is part of him. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because he is not courageous and he is very powerful, but he often like uses his power in self-serving ways. He spends this book being openly evil. (laughs) Just a jerk to everyone. Because he's a genie and he really he's in the form of a genie and he really plays. He really leans into it. He really leans into the angry genie (laughs) trapped in a bottle. Um, and is trying to come up with like the most chaotic, harmful outcomes for any wish that someone grants or that he grants someone is definitely somehow part of the curse, but also it's just like, really funny that yeah, like this is yeah, how he like really goes about it he just seems so joyful about it so then that leads me to the conclusion is that the women who are very again and again characterized as capable mm-hmm. logical rational um working through problems mm-hmm. are basically tasked with taking care of yes. the men yes um who are much and more like messy and bumbling and ordinary and uh, most of the problems that the women have are created by, by the, the men, men in the first dang place. Like exactly. they wouldn't, they wouldn't be involved in any of this crap if the men hadn't screwed it all up first. Exactly. And like, there's there's very much that feeling that like ultimately the women are totally in control and right. like everything's gonna be mostly okay because they're gonna figure it out. But first right. they have to deal with this mess, right? <laughs> and they and they created. also have to structure in a way where like the men kind of feel like they're having the control or like yeah. having a say in what's going on. And then which th- is like not quite feminism. No. <laughs> and then the piece that I really didn't like is that everyone is so relieved to have an opportunity to get married. Yes. Which, Princess Beatrice is like crying just because someone wants her, which I mean, I get the underpinnings of that. Of like she, marriage as like power and social right. cachet. And, and she's like a the, woman who is established as like not your typical feminine, pretty, pretty mm-hmm, princess. Right. Like she is doing her own thing. But I almost saw it as like you have to get married to become a queen. Right. So that's why it's like, you know, ultimately it's what the women want because mm-hmm. of the power that comes with it. Yeah, no, totally. And I understand that. Uh, but, you know, as we've discussed in many episodes before, always we'll both always have a problem with marriage as an end goal. Yes. Um, even yes. when it's in this type of situation even where when it's that's in, how women can exist. Right. Like they, they have no recourse mm-hmm. if they aren't getting married because they can't have property. They can't have any kind of power, as you mentioned. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that I, I do understand. But it was also disappointing that it's like everybody's getting married at the end. There's literally a double wedding at yeah. the end. Of this book yeah <laughs> is, the the classic fantasy story double wedding <laughs> yeah which is always very funny yeah 
So yeah, so I just had to had to say all that because it, it's a weird sort of book. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, okay, go ahead. I I was going to deviate for the feminism. Discussion. Okay, then let me just finish by saying um, it is really interesting having Abdullah as the main character for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Because he's yeah. unremarkable. Um, although he is invested in treating women as people. Yeah, um, that matters to him. So I, I, he's doing better than a lot of other people. Let's just put it there. And I appreciate his daydreaminess. Um, I mean, there are definitely things about him that I enjoy. And above yeah. all else, that he's like very steadfast. He's yeah. just like, I'm going to continue on. I'm going to figure this out. I appreciated his strength and resolve. Totally. And, and resilience. And the other kind of tricky message throughout this book, which is easier to unpack than the ones we've discussed so far, is about wickedness being appealing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Everyone of the antagonist at some point is like, I, you know, I could be good or like technically I am supposed to be good. Like Hasrul, for example, Mm. who is fundamentally a good djinn. Mm -hmm. Like he swore... uh, an oath of some kind. Yeah. Um, and I can't, yeah, I can't remember the exact but, uh, phrasing of it, but yeah. he's like in that camp, but he was, you know, quote unquote made to be wicked by his brother to carry out his wishes because he had stolen his life. Mm-hmm. But then he says that he enjoyed it. Yeah. And Howell says that he enjoyed doing bad things. The Strangian soldier, Prince Justin says that he enjoyed doing bad things. Calcifer like really likes getting, um, sycophantic psychophantic uh, praise from uh, abdullah he says like well i didn't know that i could get this in my life it's nice to be called nice i really i like (laughs) cracked up when calcifer was be like well maybe you should be nicer to me (laughs) yeah everyone just kind of revels in like the dark side of humanity and yeah deities i guess too yeah. um being a supernatural creatures the dark side of the alignment spectrum yeah and that was really funny yeah. too um and i think that it is, was very cheeky yeah very cheeky and that's part of diana Wynne jones's um playing with uh, established fairy tale yeah. messages mm-hmm. um where at the end everyone isn't like yay good one out they're all like i liked being bad yeah yeah <laughs> Like, I don't know. That was fun. <laughs> something to think about, I guess. Yeah, it's it's very wacky. There's also a weird attitude toward war in this book and uh, conflicts between nations in general. I got really stressed at the end when um, Ingri was sending, was establishing what they called explorers to go out and map the entire world because they had sent all the princesses back to their kingdoms. And some of them were kingdoms that they like didn't know about. They didn't know about the corner of the earth. And I was like, okay, Tends are we to not be good when we're white people exploring, <laughs> but like, this is making me really anxious about what's actually going to happen yeah. on those trips. And the conflict between Strangia Strangia. I'm sorry that my pronunciations are garbage. Um, That's okay. And Ingri. They're identifiable. Ingri won out through trickery because yeah. they used Howl and Solomon. Um, but that's also framed as like wag wag you rascals but there's no talk of like I'm sure the death and destruction that occurred because of that conflict and also what was the conflict about (laughs) like that's yeah well never mentioned and I Um, think I think that 
Diana Wynne Jones also kind of establishes that like war is another one of those like dumb man games totally. that yeah. like in her world, that's how she kind of presents it. Right. And then that's the thing. War is like a joke in this book. Yeah. Like it plays in the background. It's like, Oh my God, that was ridiculous. Oh God, they which, got us into this time, which makes sense with her, the types of narratives that she creates like mm-hmm. that fits, but it's also kind of jarring to read as an adult. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, for and sure. Be like, Oops. Yikes. That is a very fairy tale. <laughs> aspect of it right yeah yeah definitely oh <laughs> we could talk about it so that was we need to just animals animals in we need to do animals animals in this book and also that actually dovetails nicely into what i wanted to talk about which is literally when letty cries out sophie <laughs> when midnight changes into <laughs> sophie and then Bam! Like suddenly it's the house moving castle show. Oh my gosh. This this is what I was gonna say earlier, is that surely this was not the first um TV show to have an episode like this, but it was the first one I saw where in um the show House, which is a medical drama. <laughs> I uh, did not think we we're gonna talk about House today. Um yeah, I know. I I used to be really into that show. It was like the first medical procedural I discovered when I was a teenager. Um and there's an episode that focuses on a different one of the medical staff than usual who is in an administrative position rather than a medical position. Mm-hmm. And so it's not only changing a point of view, but then also changing a area of focus. The stakes mm-hmm. and like what stakes matter and what mm-hmm. stakes there are. Um and throughout the episode, as she's like running around trying to get the hospital this like important big grant, in the background, you see Dr. House and his medical team like furiously wrestling a patient like back into their bed or like screaming like code blue and like pushing <laughs> really a bunch funny. of buttons and stuff. That's what this made me think about mm. because suddenly, like, it, you just get in the periphery this, yeah. like, Howlin' Sophie show. <laughs> totally. But it's not really what we're focusing on. Yeah. That's just a, that's a cyclone within the narrative. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it is really funny to suddenly be like, oh, the beloved protagonist from the last book. Right. Like, yeah. Because one of them has actually been in the story the entire time. Right. The other one's been here most of the time, but one was a genie and one was a cat. Yes. So it didn't matter. It's just, it's so <laughs> Diana Wynne Jones and so very like topsy turvy in sure. just a really fun way. And I, I was joyful when Sophie busted into the story all of a sudden because I didn't realize the amount that this book was going to I touch agree. that world. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was going to be lighter. I would have read this lighter. so much earlier if yeah. I realized that this, like, that they're actually in the book. Because I always heard, well, they're not really sequels, Castle in there and the house right. in many ways. They're mm-hmm. set in the same world and there's like a tiny bit of overlap. But I would call this a sequel. Yes. Um, like a direct even though the first like two-thirds of the book we have no mention of sophia how they're actually in the book like i mentioned yeah um and their personalities are shining through even when they're a genie and a cat and everything that we've learned about them and about the way their world and the many other worlds connected to it work comes into play throughout the book and enriches it. Yeah. Um, I think if you haven't read Howl's Moving Castle and then you read Castle in the Air, you will be 
very confused and intrigued though you'd probably be like wow i gotta read the first one um but i did appreciate that there's zero hand holding for anyone who hasn't loved it it. (laughs) loved it that there's none of that yeah yeah. but those of us who love howl's moving castle are like we are like screaming for the back of the theater like It's very exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it also made for a really funny narrative structure. Yes. <laughs> it was so funny. And Abdullah even like, he doesn't like Sophie. He doesn't like Midnight and he doesn't, he doesn't like, like, Sophie. like Sophie. And he thinks Howl is a jerk and strange. <laughs> and then at the end, he's like, is he even going to like admit that he knows me? Like yeah. we've been spending the whole book together. But, but he's I been like know. different and I haven't been very nice to him. But or- Sophie also creates an opportunity for him to articulate that he likes strong women and that's why part of the reason why he loves um flower in the mm-hmm. night uh it yeah. just takes him a while to realize that yeah oh boy yeah i also love the amount of bickering in this book it's uh, just, just some really great back and forth <laughs> but like just stubborn people <laughs> refusing to give any ground to <sighs> the others like just yeah. just love it it it's stabilized my soul (laughs) and what a treat to have more howl and sophie after all these years yeah so we definitely have to read the house of many ways next yes we Um, do um i would very much like that i also we've talked about it before i have a calcifer tattoo on my side that if if i if i wiggle i could kind of make his little flames dance um but it just Ugh, I was so excited to see these characters. I don't know, like, Calcifer had lines in this book. He's, like, one of my favorite characters ever. I know. I, know. <laughs> I, I didn't know. read this book until now. And isn't it fun to think back through what you'd already read once you're like, Calcifer was the carpet. And yes! thinking about Calcifer reacting to Abdullah, peppering him with compliments. Yeah, yeah, or bringing him the dog. <laughs> bringing the dog. That <laughs> yeah. his trigger sound is a snore. It's just so really good. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So I think um, 40 minutes later, we've now covered both of the two impression approaches <laughs> that I proposed. Yes. So let's let's delve more deeply into the animals. Animals. Animals in animals this book. Uh, Sophie. Sophie. <laughs> I also love that. It's not after she transforms that Letty exclaims Sophie. It's when Sophie like flies off of Abdullah's back and on to Letty. Like latches as on a to Letty. And Letty's yeah. immediately like, Sophie! Thank you! <laughs> it's so good. So the, the Strangian soldier, um, his approach to cats is so great. Yeah. I also appreciated all the people. cultural dissonance between Abdullah and the soldier because Abdullah is coming from a perspective of like animal are functional um they're not really kept i yeah and i do also think that it's a bit of uh, when i was in beirut instead of like rats or they have cats Mm -hmm. in the city i mean i don't know maybe they have rats too and you just don't see them but for me as an american it was wild to see just like tons of stray cats all over the city pretty intense cats yes yeah Yeah. some really intense cats because they were wild city cats we don't we don't do that i think i'd rather be with a rat than one of those yes yeah Yeah. like we we are really really into cats so i appreciated that i think she did a good job with that Mm -hmm. cultural distinction Mm -hmm. of abdullah just being like this is why are you obsessed with these cats like please can we move on they're not pleasant and midnight aka sophie wasn't pleasant 
wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whippersnapper was very cute. Um, but the soldiers' treatment of them is absolutely hilarious. They waste a wish just to get salmon and milk for the cats. Mm-hmm. Um, they spend so much money everywhere to get them like baskets and cushions and baths. Yeah. I, I really love also that when Sophie gets transformed back, instead of being grateful for the treatment, is just like, screw that guy. It's not okay to be a jerk to every human and only be nice to animals. I, know. I, I was like, wow, she that is not a, what I expected. But yeah, I she love has it. Such a measured perspective. About yeah. It. Um, and it's telling that like, it's Abdullah that she's always sitting on as a cat right. because she trusts mm-hmm. him more than she does a soldier. Yeah. AKA Prince Justin. <laughs> Prince Justin. Um, but also Wait, was Prince Justin turnip head? Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Turnipet is in this book as like one of the antagonists. <laughs> Turnipet is drinking beer, cutting up and robbing people and you can nobody get, can stop him. You can get that scarecrow in Stardew Valley. It looks like Turnipet. That's <laughs> true. Um, I also love the detail that when Whippersnapper is turned from a kitten into a baby, Morgan, Morgan is pissed. He's furious yeah. because he can't have the mobility that he enjoyed. Right as a now, kitten. he's like human babies are. I think they're some of the least capable larva that oh, yeah. exist like in the mammalian world like they are so useless for so long so unprotected. a lot of a lot of babies come out of the womb and like hop up on their feet right you know yeah. like <laughs> babies are just squishy little just meat sacks and even some you know infants in because of course like for a cat they have a much shorter lifespan than a human and they right. grow more quickly but True. but then for animals that have longer lifespans their youth also grow up yeah. and become capable much more quickly than humans so quickly um so yeah animals i can relate. don't have to like make uh you know, backpacks and front packs and like wraps and stuff to carry their babies around. I mean, some with of them. them do carry their young on their backs or on their. I'm stomachs. just saying, some you, of them do. I'm human just saying. babies, boo, boo, <laughs> babies. We're You're hurting. coming, coming out first. strong. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Get a job, babies. <laughs> I do tell my cats to get jobs like every other day at this point. So true. it would really, really help. Be really helpful. <laughs> I Yes, I'm paying thousands of dollars for your medical treatments. Maybe you could kick Maybe back a little. Just get a job, something. cats. Oh, um, yep. Yeah, so love the cats. Jamal's dog is also <laughs> magnificent. Yeah. I love getting just like a disgusting fantasy animal. <laughs> How many times are we reminded that this dog reeks? Like the filthy has like permanent, like squid breath. Yeah, but like hot old squid breath. It's it is rough. The docks at low tide, and yet he loves fiercely when Mm -hmm. he does, and he hates just as fiercely as well. And Jamal says at one point, "This I really loved this line. He was like, I believe in free will. If my dog wants to hate every other person in the world besides me, then he must be allowed. (laughs) I loved that too. 
and truly like that can just be applied to so many pets yes cats and yes (laughs) more cats than dogs that's great um yeah jamal jamal's dog is is a force to be reckoned with and i I really really appreciate his presence throughout the book yeah the animals in this book are fantastic also just abdullah is saying to the soldier when he's you know making it clear that like these cats will be traveling with them um (laughs) Abdullah saying like, what, we're going to, you're going to like burst in and rob people with a kitten in your hat. Like this doesn't make sense. And there are so many fantasy stories where there are cute animals traveling along with people. And this one deals with like the realities of what that would actually be like. Yeah, Midnight, you know, who is Sophie and who isn't going to eat them, but they're turned into toads on the condition that they'll become human. It's a wish gone wrong. But Howl, Howl turns does. them into Howl does this. Howl turns Prince Justin and Abdullah into toads because they wish that they won't be seen until midnight finds them. Yeah. So by turning them into toads, they hide away from the soldiers who are seeking them. Um, but they're also toads. toads uh, but when midnight shows by a up cat. and bats each of them, they turn into people like toads are the other animals in this book that we need to mention um because abdullah uses a wish to save a few of the bandits men who were turned into toads by hal initially hal is furious that he has to turn these men back into toads and back into men abdullah turns them back into men so that they can be put to death by the sultan's guards because he decides that it would be worse to be an immortal toad yeah Um, but they were jinns to be or angels to begin with so layers upon layers upon layers but the angels find him and thank him yeah. and they're like yeah we, we didn't want to be trapped as toads and yeah. we appreciated that out so we, we've covered like romantic realism and feminism we'll get to about a slate meter but let's talk about pretend food yes <laughs> urged onward by the squid <laughs> so much squid yeah so Jamal um, who is who we haven't really talked about in detail but he is Abdullah's next door neighbor um, and he runs a like cooking stand a food stand of sorts mm-hmm. um, and prepares various fried squids and other delicacies um, so that the scent of squid is just bathing everyone at all times when they're at their stalls yeah the um, the gin yells he calls out Abdullah being like all your carpets probably smell like your neighboring stall and Abdullah was like shocked at the rudeness of pointing that out totally he's like I put up perfume it's okay <laughs> yeah yes it's a little squiddy but I'm doing my best um, so yeah, lots of squid talk throughout the book. And I appreciate that Jamal gets to go on to actually be appreciated for his wonderful culinary skills, yeah. um, ultimately as a cook for one of the princesses. Um, we get the stolen feast that the imaginary bandits, a.k.a. angels, <laughs> Yeah, really um, love that the genie Howl uh, gets them in all that trouble by just stealing the Sultan's feast. Yeah, the Sultan's lavish feast as well Ugh. as his slaves and his dancers. And they just like keep taking course after course. Yeah. So it's kind of a domino effect and of I, a stolen feast. And they, they give you that like, oh man, I really wish I could see the Sultan just losing his his mind over like everything disappearing totally um there's also a lot of uh nice a lot of nice beverage talk that i appreciated throughout the book they are in the desert so you're gonna get thirsty Mm -hmm. um and they 
Typically, Abdullah drinks fruit juice um, and sometimes wine. There is one great little moment when Abdullah is in the Sultan's dungeon, I think, and he's trying to like think of nice moments. And he uh, mentions that if he could get a little wine in the afternoon when it got too hot, he'd like sit in the shade on one of his carpets yeah. and just enjoy his wine and talk to Jamal. And I was like, that sounds great. No, honestly, Lazy I, afternoon. I got such a vivid depiction of the bazaar too, and mm-hmm. all of the sights and smells and sounds that I, I feel like I could really visualize it. Me too. Yeah. I was fully transported. It's very immersive. Yeah. Fully to the point that I kind of missed it. Cause we, we don't go yeah back to Zanzib. What I wanted to finish saying about the wine is that when Abdullah first shows up in Ingri and is at an inn, the innkeeper asks him if he'd like something to drink. And he says like, oh, some fruit juice would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, or some wine. And she's like, no, we don't have those. We have beer. That's that's the drink here. Yeah. And he's like, okay, fine. And she brings out some beer for him. And he describes it as, it seemed likely to him that the stuff in it had come from the bladder of a camel. <laughs> When he sniffed it, the smell did nothing to dispel that impression. Only the fact that he was still horribly thirsty led him to try it at all. He took a careful mouthful. Well, it was wet. (laughs) 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 And then at a different inn, he has, you know, the beer that they serve. And he says that that tastes like it came from the bladder of a sick camel. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And to be fair, uh, yeah, beer is an acquired taste. (laughs) Yeah, especially like... In on I'm the sure side the, like, of the road, the thin, beer. watery lagers that are you know medieval style, yeah, <laughs> probably even more of an acquired taste. Oh yeah. Also, the food that the cats eat is just magnificent. <laughs> um, <laughs> they want for nothing. Yeah, Sophie and Morgan. It's pretty great. Midnight and Whippers for them number. to be cats. Um, because the soldier makes sure that they get fish and cream and milk and anything else they could want. But there's also an amazing sounding breakfast that the soldier and Abdullah have because they're eating the cat's leftovers, essentially, where they get to have porridge that's cooked with milk and salmon steaks. And this is, you know, a campfire breakfast, like when they've been used to eating like the stews from bits that are coming out of the soldier's bag and things like that. Um, So I was very transported by that. And I also like... Just imagining, okay, cats come first and then you get whatever yes. they don't want. Yes. What is it that you end up with? That's, that's what cats would like things to be. Oh, God, they really would. Then just to end on a great note, um, we have a description of the boxes of sweets that princesses had promised to the youngest princess. Over 30 Valeria. boxes. There were chocolates and candied oranges and coconut ices and honeyed nuts, but the most wonderful of all were the sweets from the tiny princess, mm. layer upon layer of paper-thin candy that the tiny princess called summer leaves. This, Amazing. you know, the princesses all together being kept at the evil and not really all their uh, gin slash, like, you know, powerful magic user really reminded me of Adventure Time. Oh my god! Yes. 
<laughs> like, especially here you say tiny princess because oh, in Adventure Time they all have like, you know, and there, and there, are, and there are a few episodes where they've like all been brought together for whatever reason. Yeah, Sometimes for exactly. parties, but when, That's what, what this when the Ice King of. has captured them yeah. and has them all in his little prison. Yeah. Um, yeah, because princesses are just as varied as every other type of person is, you know? Yeah, it's, it, it just, I think that added to the pure enjoyment for me. I agree. It, yeah, adve- the Adventure Time princesses are very reminiscent of yeah. these princesses. Yeah. That's super cute. Mm-hmm. Speaking of princesses, badass lady meter. My badass lady is Sophie. <laughs> yeah. I just love her so much. One of both of our all-time favorite fantasy right. characters. Yeah, it's just yeah. in this book. Um, and I'm still in just awe of her. I love her so much. I uh, rate her a beautiful black cat with beautiful silver hair Aww. like Starlight. My Badass Lady is Flower in the Night. She spends her life in a very mm. constrained um, environment mm-hmm. uh, and is also intentionally kept from knowing quite a bit, although mm-hmm. she is able to educate herself with the books that she does have access to. Um And yet when she is broken free from that, she has such a thirst for knowledge. And instead of being overwhelmed or afraid um, or shutting down, she is so uh, eager to learn and does so in such a comprehensive, incredible way. She is the one who figures out their plan for defeating the Jinns. and throughout, I am just, I just think she's smart, funny, and great. Just yeah. like Abdullah, you know, no, it's like, she's, yeah, she's, she's hot, awesome. but she's cool. But she's great, too. <laughs> um, yeah, and I do hope that she truly wanted to marry Abdullah and that the two of them have a lovely life together. And she didn't feel forced. I don't think it. she felt forced. My rating for Flower in the Night is 1,000 drawings of men. Oh. <laughs> I, that set of drawings sounded really fun, too. It, it did sound just really cool. Yeah, I love yeah. thinking about the artist being like, yes, I can do whatever yeah, I want. Like, oh, this is cool. I can, I'll just, you know, draw people. Instead of I just being do. commissioned to paint, like, nobles right. with their riches surrounding them i can do like all the weird figures that are passing through this square every day exactly um yeah i loved that that was a really fun touch that was a Um, cool detail yeah and it felt very fairy tale too yes yeah and then the news spreading around and everyone in the town Mm -hmm. trying to sell abdullah their pictures of men or women that kind of looked like men um and or yeah just anything that they thought would fit the bill um was really enjoyable yeah Okay, um, long episode. We had a lot to say, but that was very fun. Thank you so much to all the listeners who made us aware of these sequels yeah. and requested that we cover this book. Yeah, We really appreciate it. The next book we're going to cover is a more contemporary book. It came out in 2011, and it's one that we haven't read before, but we really want to start covering books by Black and Indigenous people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, we have done woefully poorly in that regard thus far because we've been approaching this from a nostalgia perspective, and we're just covering books that we read when we were young, which are overwhelmingly <laughs> white. Um, Very white. 
So we're turning to some newer, slightly newer books um, that are YA fantasy. And new for us. And new for us. But, you know, we've covered many books that we haven't read before, including the one in this episode. So (laughs) why not just Yeah, we're really excited to um, check out some new stuff. So the book that we're going to be covering next is called Akata Witch by Nnedi Okorafor. And we look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Um, We really appreciate all of you. We hope you're all staying as safe, healthy, and sane as you can. If you have animals, I hope you are touching them often. Touch them often. (laughs) Um, You can find us on the internet at dragonbabiespodcast.com, Twitter at dragonbabiespod, and Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast. And we'll put up the book cover, um, other fun art relating to the book, maybe a picture of Madeline's calcifer tattoo. At long last. (laughs) It is very cute. And we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. I'm Grace. I'm Madeline. Until next time. Goodbye.